Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. So, how's it going? What have you been up to? I baked donuts. I've been looking for a way to make donuts for ages that doesn't require frying or buying special moulds. I was going to say, you baked donuts? Yeah. If you get the consistency, it's basically kind of somewhere between a cookie dough and a cake batter. And if you get it just right, you can pipe it out. Sorry, I'm going to do that again without almost choking. You can pipe it out and just bake it and yeah, you get donuts. Like That's I want to experiment with trying to make churros because it's the same batter for a donut as for a churro. Uh-huh. And I love churros. Mm, Can't buy this anywhere. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, the it's normally like the only place you can get them in the UK is like those market stores where they have a big fryer and they do it. Um as you go to a restaurant, I guess. Um, yeah, like, but the problem is when I did work experience in Spain, there was this one cafe that was open during the siesta. And um, me and this other person, because there was a whole group of us, we'd go to that cafe and get churros and hot chocolate during the siesta. Oh and my it was God. great. Oh my God. <laughs> and now it's really hot and I'm tired all the time. So I want churros. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that sounds like the best way to deal with extreme heat. Mm. Um, I'm so glad we, we had rain down here um, a lot last week, which is great because everything was starting to go yellow. <laughs> um, yeah, we had not had rain for two or three weeks. And then right before recording this, we had a half hour thunderstorm. Mm. And like thunderstorms are my favorite weather anyway. But after three weeks of like 24 degrees, 60, 70, 80% humidity, I I needed this. I can breathe now. <laughs> yeah, that's too much humidity. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable to my um, wimpy English complexion. Manchester is just a very humid place. The air is made of water. Yeah, I remember that. Manchester has a weird kind of microclimate where it doesn't snow, but it rains a lot. Yeah, like, I've never... I don't think I've lived somewhere that snow really happens since I was a little kid. Because, like, when I was a little kid, we lived in Northumberland, there was snow. And then I lived on the Cheshire Plain where there's just barely any precipitation full stop <laughs> then i lived in york where it just doesn't snow just uh, you know like, there was like every weather time. happens in york except good decent snow <laughs> despite it being in the north and now i, I felt kind of now I live in manchester <laughs> any place i've lived where it actually snowed was Vienna but I, I didn't live in Vienna I lived like on the outskirts in a school in the middle of a forest <laughs> um, I'm sure it was very pretty 
It was, yeah. The snow was amazing and this forest was just like mad in the snow. And the snow was like proper, <laughs> like up to your arms snow. We still didn't get off work <laughs> because schools in Austria never close. So have you have you been making anything? Um, yeah. I'm so really have... unsure. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of slowed down a little bit. And I've been doing a lot of cooking. Um, I made gooseberry fools today. Oh. It was great. So good. And normally gooseberry is a bit tart for me, but cream and a bit of sugar, like, mm, it was great. Um, so yeah, I've been doing quite a lot of cooking, which is very creative, but I guess not so tangible once you've eaten it. <laughs> uh, I did recently start making, I'm catching up with my sewing and stuff that's been not happening for a long time. So I finished that dress, which I spoke about, I think, in the last episode. And I've started making uh, a pair of shorts. So I'm in need of those. And I've got this fabric which is a cotton, it's a printed cotton with little otters on it and it's adorable. So I'm going to have otters. I'm so excited. <laughs> so this is an episode whose number is divisible by five. <laughs> and so that's how it is. It's the fifth episodes. Um, so I believe you've been researching a biography episode for us. I have indeed. And this is, I'm so excited about this. Um, I, was, I was sort of finishing off the research this afternoon and, and there are just so many things. I mean, I'm going to try not to read out the entirety of this book I was using to do um, will be a significant amount of it. So... Today we are going to talk about Alexandre Dumas. Now you might be thinking, what does he have to do with food? He is famously, um, so yeah, famously the author of the Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo, two of the fa most famous pieces of French literature ever. Um, both of which I have half read and then given up because they were so long. But um, I was enjoying it. I just sort of got distracted at some point. So I have to go back and do that at some point. Um, but yeah, one of the most famous French writers ever. Um, and he actually has quite a lot of, a lot to do with food, um, as you will find out because, yeah. So it turns out Alexandre Dumas actually does have quite a lot to do with food. Because he wrote this massive recipe encyclopedia called the Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine, published in 1873. Which is this kind of absolutely wild collection of recipes, uh, history about dishes and ingredients, information and just anecdotes from stuff that has happened to Dumas and observations and it's honestly like I just I love it um oh, no, was he a recipe blogger <laughs> he was essentially a 19th century recipe blogger I think that is a valid comp um, comparison here um, 
Yeah, so I'm going to start off with a little bit of background about Dumas, actually, because I think it is also relevant. Um, and I'm going to start with this because it's a fact that I think has become more well-known recently, but it's still quite easy to assume otherwise. Um, so Dumas was black, in case you didn't know. Um, I think you probably didn't know, but a lot of people don't know. I didn't know until... A few years ago, I think when I, I learned from Tumblr like three years ago. So. Yeah, I think I also had the Tumblr education. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Alexandre Dumas was the son of a guy called Thomas Alexandre Dumas, which is a fantastic name for a man who had possibly one of the most interesting lives I have ever come across. Um, so first dad, Thomas was born in Haiti to a French nobleman and a slave by the name of Marie-Suzette Dumas. Um, they had four kids together, and I assume they were together for quite a while, but there's no evidence that they ever got married. And this is not uh, any kind of a romantic story, because, uh, and I'm not going to dwell on this, um, but I think it's important to include as well, to fund his trip Back to France, um, the nobleman who was a marquis sold all of his children and Marie into slavery. Um, so yeah, he later bought back uh, Thomas, who was apparently his favourite son. Um, but Thomas, I think, quite understands. Doesn't make it okay. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I think it's pretty understandable that Thomas chose to take his mother's name Dumas instead of his father's uh which yeah which Alexandre Dumas also did um so yeah um <laughs> whatever about Alexandre Dumas went on to become a very high-ranking French literary officer uh, in the army of Napoleon and I, I think he was a general and he, yeah, he had this um, amazing career. Um, although he later... Sorry, what, what's, a, what's a literary officer? A literary officer, sorry. Oh, okay. To enunciate. <laughs> it probably was cutting out. Um, yeah, so he um, became pretty well known in France, I think, as well. Um <coughs> Though he later died not so well off um, after a spell in prison in Italy. I mean, his life is just like amazing story. Apparently, the Count of Monte Cristo was partly based on life of Alexandre Dumas' father. Um, and there is a apparently a really good biography of him called The Black Count. Um, I can't remember who the author is, but I will put a link to that on the Twitter. Um, and hopefully I will get to read that at some point because it sounds super interesting. Um, so Alexandre Dumas, um, as previously mentioned, became one of the most famous writers in France during his time as well. Um, and although he, as he got really successful, he also got a lot of critics who were quite racist towards him, um, as you might expect. But... Um, Alexandre Dumas also had this extremely sharp wit and he would just have amazing comebacks. Um, so, yeah, I definitely recommend um, a look at that as well because he 
he just, you know, absolutely destroyed people <laughs> who criticized him as well. Um, so back to the food history element. Um, wrote this gigantic recipe encyclopedia because he was a lifelong food enthusiast and like foodie as well and he really enjoyed like eating different things but also cooking he was apparently a really good cook um and so he put together this big dictionary thing and so i have not this massive dictionary, um, but I do have a copy of some excerpts from it, which is uh, From Absinthe to Zest, an alphabet for food lovers published by Penguin. So I'm going to sort of through that a little bit and maybe read you some, some excerpts because it's, yeah, it's a bit, a bit of a wild ride, to be honest. Um, okay. As I said, it's full of all this history as well. Some of it a bit dubious um, about these recipes and ingredients. Um, it is an alphabet, so it starts at absence. Um, also very famous in popular culture. Um, apparently absinthe was originally a tonic for the stomach. Um, if you don't know, absinthe is made out of the wormwood plant. It's a very, very bitter, extremely alcoholic spirit. Um, and also a hallucinogen. Yeah, um, as it, which is what it's famous for, for lots of the French poets. Yeah, I believe it's, it was known as the Green Fairy. Yeah. Um, in fact, Dumas writes that some of our bohemian poets have called absinthe the green muse. Some others not in this group have died from the poisonous embraces of this same muse. And in fact, he notes that the about the passion, um, about the um, particular poet Alfred de Musset. My French pronunciation is not great. Um, notes a particular episode um, in which Alfred de Musset um, misses the classes that he teaches at an academy in Paris because he is just drinking so much absinthe that he's <laughs> having a massive trip basically. Um, Excellent. And Dumas notes that Somebody makes a comment about this. Do you not find that Alfred de Musset is absent a little too frequently? And the reply was, you mean to say that he absents himself too much? Oh. That's like one that I would say. And that means oh, it's yeah. bad. <laughs> I think you have the same sense of humour as de Musset. <laughs> <laughs> so, that one's fantastic. Um, he also has a section on cake um, in which he talks about English wedding cake so he notes that the practice in England as we can read in the works of Dickens is to make an enormous cake on the occasion of the wedding of one's offspring and to distribute a slice of this to each guest which we still do um, 
So it's cool to get a mention of that in historical sources. Um, yeah. He mentions the cake is made using two kilos of flour, two kilos of butter, so of sugar, seven grams of nutmeg, eight eggs for each pound of flour, um, sweet almonds, candied lemon peel, raisins, candied orange peel, and half a liter of brandy. I'm gonna go ahead and assume that wasn't the average wedding cake. <laughs> that sounds quite large and quite um, eggy. Yeah, for a That's big a wedding. Lot of egg. I mean, yeah, it does sound a bit like the traditional English wedding cake, though, being full of alcohol and fruit, basically. Mm. <laughs> All of those things that are expensive and you have at a wedding, um, or you did. Well, yeah, so, I mean, it's not what I had at, at my wedding, but that's largely because I don't like fruitcake. Yeah, I mean, yours was much more delicious than fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the only merit of fruitcake at, at the time when it was popular was that it was expensive ingredients, but um, yeah. and also lasted forever. In fact, there used to be a tradition in the British Isles that you would use, save a piece of the wedding cake and use it for the first child's christening. No. <laughs> oh, yes. No. <laughs> Um, that one doesn't happen anymore, except maybe symbolically, I don't know. When, when you say use it for the first child's christening, I assume you don't mean like smear it across their forehead like it's the Lion King. I hope not, but I do quite like the idea of being baptised by cake. I'm just trying to work out how you would use it, because if it's just one piece of cake, it's not like that's going to be something you can serve to everyone. Like, do you give the baby the brandy cake? What do you do with the cake? Oh, I mean, it'd make the baby sleep, I suppose. Um, I'm not sure at that point. I mean, I don't have any teeth. So at that point, I probably would not be able to ingest the cake. I need hmm. to know what use the cake for the christening means. Anyway, moving on to geese. Um, <laughs> his section on geese in Dumas' book notes that geese were sacred for a long time in Rome. This was because while the dog slept, a goose who had remained awake, history does not tell us why, heard the noise made by the ghouls in scaling the capital. This goose woke her friends, who all took fright and started screeching so loudly and to such good purpose that they, in their turn, awoke families. So guess geese are heroes now that is um, a beautiful and definitely fake story <laughs> yeah and i noticed this in a lot of dumas anecdotes i think um as is perhaps understandable for a writer he preferred the cool story to the actual historical truth um <laughs> which i i'm not judging i mean do i even when it's important to also say the historical truth mm. As soon as Julius Caesar had defeated the Gauls, members of the Roman army started to eat geese. So the Romans are betrayers of geese. <laughs> I want betrayer of geese on my tombstone. 
Oh gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> going on to the next section. Um. Oh, okay. So, this is one mentioning the potofo. Um, it's a type of stew that is uh, famous in France. And in fact, as Dumas says, France, I have already said, is the only country which knows how to make a pot of veau. Furthermore, it is probable that my janitress, who has nothing to do but look after her pot of veau and unlatch the door, eats better soup than Mr. Rothschild. Very much like. So, who is Mr. Rothschild? The famously really, really rich American oil baron, I think. Um, so this is in the 1870s, which I think is... So I think that's the Rothschilds that he's referring to. Um, yeah. So he's mentioning this in the context of a holiday that he took to the seaside when he stayed with some friends and offered to cook them all dinner. And he says that I, I had everything spread out on the kitchen table and I asked for pen and ink. The approval of my table companions, I presented the following menu, in which there are four entrees, two roasts, two side dishes, a salad, and dessert. Which is an extremely French-sounding meal. Yeah. Now, he then says that he asked for an hour and a half in which to cook this meal. <laughs> Apparently did it. did have help i think he does mention that there is a cook there was unanimously demoted and dumas was elected in her place she's free to keep the title of vice cook but only on condition that she would not oppose the chief cook anyway wow which sounds like a bit of a calm down um so i'm just I'm gonna wondering give you... given dates whether that would have been served like all at once um because oh, no. the idea of serving courses didn't really take off in France until, like, the mid to late 1800s. Okay, I would think that it probably would be, or some of it at least would be courses, I think. Um, being the 1870s. Okay, 1870s, it probably would have been courses. Yeah. But it's right on that borderline where there's still a chance. Yeah, I I think probably some of it, like side dishes and things and main dishes would be together. Um, I think that kind of is still a thing in France as well, to have lots of different dishes on the table, um, rather than what we tend to do is everything on one plate served at the same time um, and then split it up into courses. So I'm just going to give you one of the dishes from this menu as an example of the kind of things that Dumas enjoyed and would have cooked. Um, so this is called Calais à la sauce normande, which is place with a seafood sauce. Um, I'm assuming that means Normandy sauce. Uh, <laughs> so the recipe is the place on a silver dish, which must be buttered, Season it with salt, pepper, and a glass of white wine and put it in the oven. Doesn't say for how long. 
Put a piece of butter in a casserole and stir in a little flour until it becomes golden. Listen this with the butter and white wine from the place, leaving behind only enough liquids to ensure that it does not dry up. Reduce by half. Cook about 30 mussels and 10 or 12 mushrooms. The juice from the mussels in the sauce, reduce it all by half, and then bind it with four egg yolks and half a glass of fresh cream. Arrange the mussels and mushrooms around the place and pour the sauce on top. Put the dish here and there with some little pieces of very fresh butter. The fish sit in the oven for two minutes and then serve it. That does sound delicious. I mean, it does sound delicious. It also sounds like a very fussy dish to make. He doesn't really say anything about timings. So I'm I'm going to assume that he's assuming whoever's reading it kind of knows how long to cook things for. Which I suppose would be more common knowledge at the time as well. Probably um, a lot more judging by eye as well. Yeah. With sort of big open ovens. Yeah, I mean, if all the dishes are like that, though, it must be incredibly hard to try and get them all ready at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. Um, <laughs> what about this? So this is in uh, one of the recipes about chicken. It says, All animals have two orifices, the upper and the lower. Chicken, in this respect, is the same as man. Without getting too blue, humans definitely have more than one lower orifice. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a good sentence. <laughs> I'm just admit. trying to work out how you would even come to that conclusion. <laughs> I think it was a bit of a generalisation. <laughs> Little bit. <laughs> I just like the imagery that that produces. <laughs> I'm, I'm just seeing him looking in the mirror and going, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe holding up a chicken for comparison. <laughs> Behold a man. <laughs> he does actually mention that. He goes on to mention the uh, Diogenes pulling out a plucked chicken. Amazing. It is Plato's man. <laughs> so there's also a big section on truffles. And I have to say, I've never eaten a truffle. It's an ambition. One day. Yes, same. Um, uh, so truffles are of a big thing i mean he talks about them as the gastronomes gastronomes holy of holies uh to the word which commands throughout the ages have never pronounced without lifting their hands to their hats it's a truffle and oh man i'm gonna go on because this is you have questioned scholars, asking them exactly what this tubercle is. And after 2,000 years of discussion, the scholars reply as they did on the first day. We don't know. You have interrogated the truffle itself. The truffle has replied to you, eat me and adore God. To recount the history of the truffle would be to take on the task of relating the history of world civilization. <laughs> that is an introduction. 
eat me and adore God. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> so, apples were said to be an aphrodisiac. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've talked about oysters being that as well. Um, and according to Demar, um, it has been said, not by him, but, but by others, it awakens erotic and gourmand memories in the skirted sex, gourmand and erotic souvenirs in the bearded sex. <laughs> the truffle is certainly not a positive aphrodisiac, but in certain circumstances, it can make women more tender and men more amiable. There you go. Apples, lads. So it just makes you nice. <laughs> yeah, it's just feel a bit nice. <laughs> um, also, I like that with the skirted sex and the bearded sex. It doesn't specify which is which, so you know. Ahead. Well, no, I mean you've got you've got bearded ladies and you've got clean-shaven people in trousers. Precisely. <laughs> it's not. It's not of interest to that last group. <laughs> Whichever you are, the truffle make you feel nice <laughs> I mean truffles as far as I'm aware truffles are a kind of fungus right yeah um he talks about the most ancient recipe for truffles being attributed to our friend Apicius uh, yeah we've, um, we've mentioned him before haven't we we have indeed I think we mentioned him in the form of curry I think Nick did um and so the recipe for ragu of truffles, Apicius, is first cook your truffles in water, then put them on a skewer and let them turn five or six times over a fire. Mix them with oil, lemon juice, chervil, which is a herb, pepper and salt. When the sauce boils, bind it with eggs and wine, which sounds quite nice. Um, I should mention that Nick, being of Italian extraction, Looked very excited when you said ragu of truffles. <laughs> I know. I mean, all of this is wanting me is making me want to do a three musketeers themed dinner party, which is fancy dressed and has Dumas recipes. Yes, let's do it. Oh man, let's do it eventually after pandemic. <laughs> um, one day. One day. One day. Um, the editor of this book <laughs> has put in a note that says, this recipe does not correspond, except in a very general way, to any of the six given by Apicius. <laughs> and to be fair, Apicius's recipes are a lot of kind of get these ingredients, make them hot together. <laughs> yeah, I feel, like Demar, the details. I feel like Demar kind of looked at it and went, uh will do this is it i get i get the um, idea yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it then goes up to i mean the end of the book is zest which is a pretty short entry about lemon zests or citrus zests um and the reason you should separate them from the rest of the fruit um yeah that's about it that's uh, sort of i picked out some of the most interesting and or hilarious bits of the book to read to you. But I definitely would recommend 
having a look. Um, like I said, you can just get an abridged version if you don't want to read massive encyclopedia written in the 1870s, which I wouldn't blame you for. But, um, definitely. Yeah, I feel look. like it's, it's going to be a slog. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely worth it. If not just because a lot of the recipes described sound delicious. Um, so I'm really excited to try. Oh, hold on a second. I've just seen Frog. Hello, I'm Mod, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Have you ever wanted to see a tripe monster? Do you want to know what happens when you compress an egg? We don't have these answers. Or that. Do you want to truly understand the tripe monster from space? Do you want to know what happens when you compress an egg? We don't have the answers to these questions, but we do have a podcast about bad and weird films. Pod 9 from Outer Space. Starring me, Nick, and Liz, who is not me. Yeah, so, um, I, okay, I've just come across frogs, so I'm just gonna... <laughs> there are many types of frog which differ in size, colour, and habitats. Frogs which live in the sea are monstrous and are not used as a foodstuff. Nor are frogs which live on the land. The only frogs which are good to eat are those which live in the water. Frogs which live in the sea? Apparently, there are sea frogs. Um, yeah. Is that a real thing? Um, I don't know. But he's pretty sure of it. So, apparently, um, the English ate toads? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, um, definitely would recommend having a look at this book or the abridged version if you don't want to slog through the whole thing. Uh, if only because a lot of the recipes in it sound delicious and you might want to try them out. Um, so I've tried googling I... sea frogs and I can only find underwater cameras. I do not know what Duma was talking about. Maybe it's because they're so monstrous that people just avoid them. <laughs> Um, oh gosh, I hope there aren't terrifying frog monsters living in the sea. According to animals.com, <laughs> there's no such thing as saltwater frogs. Where are you getting because your frog animals can't survive in saltwater. <laughs> okay, I have absolutely no idea why Dumas is convinced there are sea frogs. <laughs> But you, you can't eat them anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, don't. Um, if you ever see a see a sea frog, maybe just don't don't eat it anyway. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed learning about Dumas and his love of food. Do Do you want to start the wrap up this time? Since he uh, said, sure. I, hope we, I hope you enjoyed. <laughs> um, cool. 
So I hope you enjoyed learning about Dumas and his love of food. Um, that was about all we've got time for. So you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions or comments. Have a look at our Twitter, uh, Bread and Thread on Twitter, for interesting information, things that we are making, and pictures and links that we talk about in the episode. Yeah, I promise I'm trying to get Hazel to actually use Twitter more, but she does not have Twitter. <laughs> so it's just remembering to use the bread and thread one. It's a foreign technology, but I'm, I'm getting hang of it. <laughs> um, you can also support us at patreon.com slash bread and thread. Um, we have a patron exclusive Discord server, as well as exclusive recipes and videos. I believe the next video is going to be about your chickens. It is going to be about general chicken keeping. Um info information so yeah you can support us that way or just by giving us a rating or a review telling someone that we exist so yeah go forth be creative and have a good time